Why don't we go ahead and get started this morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, I thought we'd, uh, before we jump into the, the content, I want to prime the pump a little bit with a couple of readings uh, in prayer. Uh, first is from Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Come on in, guys. And then the second reading from John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the, as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful to be among your people, to be counted among your flock, to have you as our shepherd, the one who leads us beside quiet waters and gives rest to our souls, who comforts us even in the shadow of death, We're thankful to belong. But we're also aware that you have other sheep. People who don't belong. I pray that you'd give us eyes and hearts of concern for those who long to be a part of your flock but have found themselves on the outside. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, come on in. Uh, So there are some words uh, that we use that we overuse. And because we overuse them, we lose touch of what they originally meant. Uh, And so as an example, this one word that this has happened to is the word literally. Uh, Now literally is supposed to mean not figuratively. Right. Uh, so as an example, right, if you tell uh, your little daughter playing softball to keep her eye on the ball, you are speaking figuratively. Uh, if you were speaking literally, you would ask her to take the softball and place it against her eyeball. Right. Uh, but we've, we've changed the word literally. Start using it almost as a, a way to emphasize something. I literally could eat an elephant. No, you can figuratively eat an elephant. Uh, you cannot literally eat an elephant. My favorite example of this was at ACU Chapel one day. There was somebody who got up to lead the prayer. And during the prayer, uh, he said, Father, we love you so much. And I just pray that you would literally set our hearts on fire for you. <laughs> Which uh, I'm thankful that God didn't answer that prayer. Uh, I, I can imagine God up there listening. Okay, Uncle Joe's heart surgery. <laughs> 
blesses food to our bodies, uh, world hunger, spontaneous human combustion. What is wrong with these people? But we've we've lost touch of what this actually is supposed to mean. Uh, And I think something similar has happened with the word lost. Uh, And it's, it's important for us to pay attention to that because we use the word lost all the time. It's one of those words that's in Christian vocabulary. Uh, and so just as an example, some of the ways this shows up, right? Of course, that old hymn, Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Uh, another one that our tribe uh, knows is seeking the lost. Yes, kindly entreating wanderers on the mountain astray. Uh, if you, oh, this is uh, in front of the Presbyterian church where I'm at in Rogers, Arkansas. Uh, they have these wooden signs out in front and feeling lost. There's another wooden sign just behind this that says, well, welcome home. Uh, Trying to find lost sheep and welcome them. Uh, If you Google the sermon series, Lost and Found, let me show you what you get. This is all over the place. In fact, there is literally, and that's a correct use of the term, (laughs) there's literally another class going on right now by Rick Ashley and Chris Seedman called Lost and Found. well, this is this is ubiquitous language. This is from a Church of Christ. I, I found this: convert the lost to Christ, a heart for the lost, understanding God's heart for the lost. I once was lost. Uh, all these sermon series, uh, and and here's what I want us to think about: we we use it so much uh, that it's become kind of coded language for us uh, as a way of talking about a certain group of people. Uh, and so to kind of get at that, I. I need your help on this. What, what are some synonyms we might use for lost? What are some other words that also mean lost? Missing. Are you missing? Confused. Confused? Same. If you were trying to describe the same group of people we typically describe as lost, what words would you, you mean, use? Like Christian language. Like yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like damned. Okay, damned. Yeah, would be one. Sinners. Sinners. Unsaved. Unsaved. Unbelievers. Unbelievers. Uh, Unchurched. Non-Christians. Yeah. For us, I think the word loss has become this generic term for anyone who doesn't, isn't a part of the Christian community, who wouldn't identify as a Christian. If you don't identify as a Christian, then you are lost. You're outside the bounds. And it's even more narrowly used most of the time to talk about whether you're going to heaven or hell, right? If you're saved, going to heaven. Uh, if, you're, if you're lost, uh, then you're going to hell. Um, and that's, that's the way we use it. When we use that language, it's coded language for what we've just described. Now, the problem with that is that's never how it's used in the New Testament. That, that's not the group that's being described. Um, so I want to start with Paul. I want to show you every usage of the word lost in the letters of Paul. You ready? (laughs) There it is. Paul never uses that word to describe a group of people. Uh, And that is fascinating to me. Uh, Because you would think the people that Paul is dealing with would be exactly the group of people that you would describe as lost. Right? He is dealing, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's dealing with people who were worshiping idols and getting drunk on Saturday night and sleeping with prostitutes. In one point in 1 Corinthians, he literally, again, I used it right, right correctly, uh, he literally has to tell them that incest is wrong. 
these, these people, if anybody's lost, surely it's the people that Paul is talking to. But he never uses it because it's referring to something else. Uh, so there's, there's four times the word shows up in the New Testament to describe a group of people. All of them are on the lips of Jesus. Uh, two of them are in the Gospel of Matthew and two of them in the Gospel of Luke. We'll start with Matthew. Uh, Matthew in Matthew 10, uh, Jesus has just gathered his 12 disciples. And he's wanting to send them out to join the work of the kingdom of God, doing the same things that he has been doing. Uh, healing the sick, proclaiming the gospel, uh, driving out demons. It's, it's now their turn to practice that. Uh, and here's how he sends them off. The 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. He says, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And what we need to pay attention to is there's two different groups being described here, right? There's the Gentiles and the Samaritans, those who are outside the community. And those are the people that Jesus doesn't describe as lost. The people that he describes as lost are those that were somehow connected with Israel. He's going to the lost sheep of Israel. And in this section, Matthew 10, some of the hardest sayings of Jesus appear. He says, you're going to be dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, and if you don't bear your cross, you're not worthy of following me. There's, I've come to bring a sword, uh, not peace. There's going to be strife between father and son and mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, but all this conflict. And he says, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body. He has to say all of that because he's just sent them out to go after the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, he sent them out to their own people. And they're going to be troubled by what they're seeing. And there's going to be conflict between them. Uh, something similar happens in Matthew 15. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, a Canaanite woman. From that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Okay, again, this is an outsider who's found Jesus, this Canaanite woman, not a part of the people of God. And Jesus tells her, uh, it keeps going. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps, cry keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. It's that same phrase from Matthew 10. I didn't come here to serve the Canaanite in this moment. What I came here for was the lost people, the, the lost sheep of Israel. And this is the same thing we, we find in the Gospel of Luke as well. It's the same group being described. Uh, in Luke 15, this is the first time it shows up in the Gospel of Luke. And this is that famous sequence uh, that, you know, the, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, the prodigal son. Um, all of them are these parables, these metaphors for getting at this group of people. But that section opens with this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. And then he tells them those three parables. Lost sheep, lost coin, the lost son. And, and that's his defense of himself. When, when someone asks, okay, why are you hanging out with those people 
his response is to tell these stories. The Pharisees are troubled by who he's hanging out with. Now, why is that? Well, it's because those are outsiders. They used to belong to the people of God. Zacchaeus, we'll get to him in just a little bit. He's a tax collector. The sinners, right? You think about the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well. Like these are people who belong to the, used to belong to the people of God, but they failed to meet the criteria. They failed to meet the community standards. And so all of a sudden they find themselves on the outside. And the Pharisees are comfortable with that. They shouldn't belong to us. They broke the rules. They are sinners. When they look at the people Jesus is hanging out with, what they see is a cancer that needs to be surgically removed. They see a contaminant that might mess up the water and poison the water for everyone else. They see rebels who are setting their face against God. That's, who they, that's what they see when they see the people that Jesus is hanging out with. And Jesus says, okay, now this, this is how we need to see him. They're not a cancer. They're not contaminants. They're not poison. What they are is lost. You only lose something you used to have. That's what Jesus wants us to see. That's what Jesus wants the Pharisees to see. You used to have them. Why are they on the outside? They're, you've lost them. Uh, and uh, this is the way the Pharisees look at it. Uh, this is from a cartoon by David Hayward. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold it right there. He wasn't lost. We kicked him out. <laughs> I think that gets at the spirit that Jesus is trying to confront. Right? And, and that stands opposed to the way we typically use that word, right? The way we use the word is coded language for any outsider. It's our way of kind of politely saying, even though it's not all that polite, of saying you don't belong to us, right? It's a way of othering those people. Those don't belong. And Jesus uses it for the exact opposite reason. He's trying to get them to see, no, they actually do belong. And somehow they've found themselves on the outside by things that we have done, the community has done. We've built walls and barriers that have kicked them out. Zacchaeus is kind of the preeminent example of this. And, and anytime we talk about Zacchaeus, we need to also hold in our minds the passage from Luke 18, the, the, the rich young ruler, uh, as this kind of foil to Zacchaeus. Because who is the rich young ruler? Well, he is the ultimate insider. He should be, at least. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Follow, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, follow the Ten Commandments. You know them. And he tells them, I've, I've done all of that since birth. I just, that's who I am. I'm, I'm fully committed to this way of life. I'm a, I'm a law follower. And then Jesus tells him, well, okay, you need to give everything away. And that's when he goes away sad. And he discovers himself, surprisingly, outside the kingdom. That he couldn't quite get there. The very person you would expect to be at the very center of the community. This pillar. Uh, someone who's reached high status within that community. Finds himself on the outside. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus shows up. Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Not just tax collector, chief tax collector. Which means he is getting rich on his own people's oppression. Right? The soldiers that are marching around Judea, 
and keeping Israel oppressed are paid by the money that Zacchaeus collects. Those opulent palaces that the Roman governors are living in, at the very heart of Jerusalem, next to the temple, they're built with the money that Zacchaeus collects. The crosses, even, that they use to, to smack down any hint of rebellion, that's paid for with the money that Zacchaeus collects. And meanwhile, he's living it up. He's high in the hog. Uh, and so you can understand why his people would want him on the outside. You don't belong. You've, you've crossed that line. You chose your side. So you don't belong to us anymore. But then we hear this story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to them, said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. He, he did what the rich and ruler couldn't do. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount, which is exactly what Torah says to do. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Okay, everything we've been talking about, that thread of this is the lost sheep of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel, those who used to be a part of the community but now aren't, it's all summed up in that last verse. Jesus came to seek and find, to invite back into the community those who were kicked out. No, you actually belong. And my favorite line in all of this is, because this man too is a son of Abraham. Why did salvation come to his house? Jesus doesn't talk about repentance. What he talks about is he belongs. He's a son of Abraham, just like everybody else that's there along the, that street, wanting to get a glimpse of Jesus. This man, too, is a son of Abraham. And think back to the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 3, verse 8. This is John the Baptist speaking. It says, Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. As there's this level of pride for the insiders, right? Well, I belong. And so surely my salvation is not in question. But John the Baptist comes in and says, you guys have to change. The sword is coming. Fire is going to come in and wipe those that need to be wiped away, you better be on your guard because the kingdom of God is about to arrive. And for those who are sitting there listening, for some of it's, well, yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to be okay. I get that. You know, some people need to hear that message. You know, so we need to preach some more fire, hellfire and brimstone sermons because there's some people that need to hear it. But not me. Because I'm, I'm a child of Abraham. I, I belong. And, and this is John the Baptist's way of leveling the playing field. Saying, no, 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 no. Uh, don't take too much pride in that. 
God can raise up the children of Abraham from stones. Now that counts for nothing. You guys set your, set your world right in alignment with the, the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus says Zacchaeus is. He, he fits. He belongs. This man, too, is a son of Abraham. And, and, and that leads me to this question. Who have we lost? If we were going to use the word lost in our own contemporary setting and revise the way we use it, instead of using it as coded language for those who aren't a part of our community, any non-Christian, and rather use it for the people that used to be a, belong to us but now find themselves on the outside, who might we be describing? And that's an open question. Who have we lost? <coughs> What's that? Divorcees. Yeah. Yeah, historically, that's been one of those dividing lines, right? Uh, we just recently at our church uh, went through a study on deacons. We've just appointed new deacons. And that was the big issue that we had to study before we, we appointed them. Was There was a few men that seemed like they would be great deacons, but they had been divorced and remarried. Uh, and so we had to think through that. And previously... That conversation probably would have ended a very different way, but the church has come to a place to welcome those. Yeah. The next generation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I want to unpack that a little bit more. She said the next generation. Because uh, I think there's so many young people who are finding their way out of church, who are showing themselves out, who feel like they don't belong anymore. Uh, I, I have a friend uh, who, he just recently left our church, uh, and he's just the prototypical, I mean, he's older than me, but he's a prototypical millennial. He, just, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't admit that, but uh, he is. Because uh, he's, he's troubled by our, our history with racism. Uh, and he wants us to be, to think through our, our, how we worship. There's things that he's learned from other Christian groups that are really valuable to him, that have shaped him, but we seem so resistant to them. Thinking about the, the way we structure our worship, that we, we're losing people. Yeah, good. Others we've lost? Doubters? Yeah. Yeah, uh, because it can make us feel uncomfortable, right? Uh, because uh, if, you're, if you can kind of circle the wagons and draw hard lines, it makes it really easy. You can tell who's in it and out, right? Uh, well, if you don't believe like me, well, then you, you belong over there. Uh, but is there a way of belonging in which you are fully committed to this group of people but still find yourself in conversation on a number of topics? Um, can we make room for that? Um, and, and I think of people from other Christian traditions, right? Uh, we, we have some dear friends who recently left the church because they had been brought up in a Presbyterian church. Children were baptized as infants. And we drew a hard line on that. Uh, that hadn't been there before. Um, and, and, and churches of Christ have sometimes done that, right? We've had these, these moments where we've been drawn to drawing those lines, where we wanted those boundaries. 
because again, it makes us feel safe. Right? Uh, that, that's one way of reacting to people leaving. Uh, and I think it is reactive, right? That when people start to leave, we've got to build a wall. We, we've got to circle the wagons. We've got to make sure we know who's in and who's out. Uh, because that, at least then, we can know who belongs. And I can make sure I know that if you want to get in, here's, here's what you're going to have to do. And that can make us feel safe. We'll just create our little bubble uh, and not have to worry about encountering the messiness of life. Um, yeah. It's more like an uh, unspoken, not necessarily just like a social thing, but like economic, uh, people in poverty. Yeah. People that don't maybe live the same standard economically as other children. Right. Uh, yeah, I, and I think about uh, youth ministry. Um, you know, one of the struggles we have is we want to do all these great church events. Um, and, you know, like ski trips and stuff like that. Uh, but there's a level of, if you're going to have them pay for it, there's a, a level of affluence you have to have in order to participate in the youth group. Right? Uh, that's something we've got to pay attention to. But even a cultural barrier, right? If I'm, if I'm living in poverty, I'm not thinking about the same things as, as those with more money, right? I have different concerns. I'd say along those lines is people that struggle too much, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah needing, I think of benevolence, like, it's hard because you're always, like, I'll just leave it at that one. Like, yeah. People that struggle too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's it, it, an issue a lot, in a lot of small groups, right? There's, I've seen people leave small groups because there were so many needy people that were there, and it just felt like it was this draining experience, right? Uh, you know, can, how, and how do we welcome those who have great needs? Do, do they belong to the community? Can we find a way uh, to invite them in? I, I've, I've talked to elderly folks who feel dispossessed in their own churches, uh, who feel like they used to have a voice, they helped build this church, but now I just I, I don't have the influence I used to have. Um, and it, they, they feel like outsiders in their own community that they helped build. That's just something I want to pay attention to as well. David, uh, so another group that I, I didn't realize until just recently is like the adult single, like the the, yeah. the church is so built around married couples and, mm. and families that, that we forget about. But it's not really built for people who are single. Right. Yeah. Uh, and we'll even, some, some churches will even say we're a family-oriented yeah. church. Yeah. Uh, that we're going to build our systems around the nuclear family. Right. Um, which is so fascinating given the history of the Christian tradition. It used to be the celibate was, you know, esteemed. Right? The, the single person was esteemed. There was one church father who said, you know, I'm okay with marriage because they might have children who are celibate. Right. That was his. That was his pass on marriage. Uh, but yeah, we've completely reversed that, right? That that marriage and family is held in high esteem, and there's, it's hard to find room for for anybody else. Yeah. Homosexuals are yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dear friends of mine, who are just as steeped uh, in their churches as I was growing up, uh, who deeply love it, who are fully committed uh, to their churches uh, and been shaped by the gospel, but feel like they have to choose between having a loving relationship with someone and their faith. 
uh, and regardless of your stance on that issue, I think we can all empathize with that impossible decision that, that so many are in. We just avoid the topic, exactly. right? Because uh, we realize how messy it is. Uh, I, I think of people of color. Right? I, I look out at a church that's almost completely white, and that didn't happen by accident. There were lines that were drawn uh, that made the church look that way. Uh, that we've we've got to reckon with. Okay. David, I, this probably sounds silly out here, but it's true in the deep South evangelical culture. Any one of a non political bent doesn't find much of a home in church. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Our Democrats welcome in your ha- in your church. Yeah. Openly. Yeah. Open Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Is it is it a safe place for whatever political leaning? Right. Most released from prison. Oh yeah. 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 Absolutely. I think of mental health issues. Uh, I've been in a conversation with a guy recently who's just come back to church. Uh, He grew up Catholic uh, and left faith for most of college and a few years after. uh, And partly because he had questions, there was some doubt there, but a lot of it was connected to depression and anxiety. That that just the church didn't have the resources for that. and there wasn't a place where he could kind of sit in that darkness and still feel connected to a church that would welcome him. Right? We, that's one of those we, we often try to keep at arm's length because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, th- those, are, those are people who are often lost. And I, I don't think it's an accident that he's finding his way back to church after he's worked through a lot of that. But now he, now he can connect to faith again. I, I hate that that was the story. Uh, so, you notice in uh, the story of Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus welcomes uh, Zacchaeus before he repents. Because right? Right? often that's, that's the rebuttal when we start talking about this. Well, you know, we, we want to welcome everyone into the church. Well, but you've got to repent. I agree, there's repentance. That has to be a part of the story. Um, but for me, so often... Uh, repentance has come on the other side of welcome. That it was welcome uh, and belonging that gave me the space to finally <laughs> repent, uh, to change my ways, right? The, the churches that have most helped me are the churches that welcomed me as I was <coughs> and gave me room to grow and, and people in my life that would challenge me in a relationship of love. Right? Uh, the people that I go to when I'm struggling with something, are not the people who want to hear the hellfire and brimstone sermons. It's the people who have wrestled with their own sin 
and because of that are the sa- a safe place to go to. Uh, where anything I would say uh, would, would not be shocking to them. That are, it wouldn't break the relationship. Those are the relationships that, that help save me. Right? And, and, and the sermons that have been most helpful to me have never been those condemning sermons that draw a hard line. You've got to change your ways. It's always those who've tried to convince me that God is so full of love that he would do anything to come and get me. Right? That, that's, those, that's the move if we want to see repentance. Uh, so I love this scene from Les Mis. Um, it's towards the beginning of the movie. Uh, I'll let you watch it. Then we'll, or maybe I'll let you watch it. <laughs> hey! Come and suffer, you are weary. And the night is cold out here. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. <laughs> there is wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong. There's a bed to rest till morning. Rest from pain and rest from wrong. Bless the food we eat today. Bless our dear sister and our honored guest. Something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. Remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for God. 
I, I love that scene. Uh, you're good to watch again. Uh, just one of the most uh, beautiful. I don't, I'm not a big musical guy, but that's my favorite scene in a musical. That doesn't say much, but it, it is my favorite. Um, yeah, because here's this, this moment where he's clearly done wrong, right? He's just made a decision. And previously, he was already in prison. But he's, he's clearly made a decision that would put him on the outside of the community, right? He stole, and he didn't just steal. He stole from the church. Uh, but in, in this moment, he meets forgiveness. He meets welcome. I, I love where he talks about the honored guest, right? This is our honored guest. He belongs here. We're not just tolerating his presence with us. No, he, he belongs here. Uh, and he tells him, okay, I've, I've given you this silver. Now I've saved your soul for God. And that, that happens in, in the film. Uh, from that point on, Jean Valjean's a different man. And it wasn't because he was confronted with his sins. It was because he found welcome even when he should have been on the outside. And that's what we've, we've got to rediscover. A, a way of welcoming those who have found themselves on the outside of the community where they are our honored guests, not tolerated, but loved and cherished in the midst of our communities. Uh, that, that's what we've got to return to um, and grow in. Uh, and, and I'm thankful for churches that have done this, right? I, I, we haven't always failed in that. Uh, I'm a, I'm, as I mentioned before, I'm a part of a church that has changed its mind on divorce and remarriage in order to make more room for those who were on the outside. Uh, and that's the trajectory I hope we, we stay on. I, I want to share um, a, a story uh, that I, I wrote this a while ago, uh, my own parable of the lost sheep. And, and I wrote it to try to get us to reimagine what it means to be lost and to question who is really lost um, and, and the place of boundaries in our religious communities. Uh, so let me read this to you and we'll... We'll unpack it a little bit. The crisis began when one sheep went missing. There seemed to be no reasonable explanation for the disappearance, which made it all the more disturbing for the 99 sheep who remained in the good shepherd's sheep pen. The parents whispered their theories to one another so as not to frighten the little lambs. Perhaps a thief broke in at night and took her. There are wolves out there and they're crafty. You know, she always was a black sheep. Maybe she just left. They more, the more they talked, the more their anxiety grew, and before long, the entire flock was in a near panic. Eventually, an elderly ram decided he needed to say something in order to calm everyone's nerves. He gathered the whole flock together on the greenest patch of grass near their picturesque pond and began to console them. Remember, he said, the good shepherd brought us here years ago. Have you forgotten what it's like on the outside? A murmur of shared trauma spread through the crowd. Do you remember what our old lives were like when we had to fend for ourselves? We lost sheep every day to wolves, to mountain lions, to thieves. We were miserable until the good shepherd came into our lives. He saved us. And one of the oldest youths who had lived through those terrible years shouted, Amen. <laughs> the good shepherd brought us here, the elderly ram continued. To live in safety, we have plenty to eat and drink. Our fences and gates keep us safe. We can raise our lambs without fear. So we should keep in mind the words of the good shepherd himself. Do not worry. <coughs> the flock was silent until one brash young ram spoke up. 
But where's the good shepherd now? We haven't seen him in years. If he's so good, why doesn't he come back to us? The elderly ram bristled and shouted back. The good shepherd knows what he's doing. He is, we have always trusted him and he has kept us safe. Until now, said another sheep, this time a middle-aged ewe. This was quickly getting out of hand, so the elderly ram changed tactics. Listen, I know you're scared. We'll post guards at the four corners of the pen. They will keep watch at night and ensure that no, we lose no one else. This seemed to satisfy the crowd, and everyone went off to their own way. A few weeks passed without incident, and the sheep gradually eased back into their previous peaceful existence. Everyone was grateful for the wise leadership of the elderly ram. This return to normal order was rather short-lived, however, because their tranquil lives were interrupted once again when the missing sheep showed up suddenly at their gate. The other sheep immediately ushered her into the safety of the pen and began peppering her with questions. Where were you? Are you hurt? How did you find your way back here? But she refused to answer any of their questions, instead startled them with a troubling pronouncement. I've seen the good shepherd, and he sent me back here to take you all to him. The shock of this statement disquieted the growing crowd. You want us to leave the sheep pen? But it's dangerous out there. Why should we trust you? Finally, one of the young ewes asked, What is the good shepherd like? The missing sheep turned to her and said, He's a wonderful shepherd in the world. He's the most wonderful shepherd in the world. He's gentle and caring, but brave and fierce at the same time. He knows the land inside and out, every pond and stream, every meadow and mountain. Wolves hear him coming and run the other direction. You never have to be afraid when you're with him. The young youth thought about it for a long time and then finally said, I'll go with you. I want to see the good shepherd myself. And so the flock looked on in horror as the two sheep left the security of the pen and wandered away to find the good shepherd. When the elderly ram heard about this, he was furious. Immediately, he doubled the number of guards at the gate, and at each corner of the pen, he set curfews for the youngest sheep and demanded that everyone stay in groups of three or four at all times. Yet despite his best efforts, sheep continued to go missing. Every day, there were less and less in the pen. He tried to reason with the flock, don't leave the safety of the pen. The good shepherd promised he would come back for us. Where is your faith? Stay here. He will return someday. But fewer and fewer listened. And eventually the elderly ram was the only sheep left in the sheep pen. He was lonely and scared, but trusted the good shepherd would return, even if he was the only one left who had been faithful. And one day the good shepherd did indeed return. And when he did, he entered the gate, smiled, and gently placed the one lost sheep on his shoulders. I, I wrote that to start to think about how we maintain our boundaries, right? What we just described with young people leaving, and the reactivity we can often have to that, I was, was hoping to capture in that story, that as people leave, because they, they, they feel like they can't find Jesus among us, and they're off looking for the shepherd, and we can freak out about that, and start to double the guards, make sure we maintain everyone else and keep them here. We get really concerned about numbers when we're reactive like that. Uh, but maybe we need to hear the voice of the lost saying, we found a good shepherd out here. Uh, and, and if we want to find him, we, we might have to be okay pulling down some barriers that we've, that we've built up. That we might need to stop guarding the boundaries quite as much. Um, because then 
that gives us a chance to encounter the good shepherd uh, who would stop at nothing to be with us. And, and, I, and I hope you heard in that story, too, that the elderly ram is not just crazy or a curmudgeon, right? What he says is, is coming from a deep life of faith. Right? He experienced the good shepherd himself. There's a reason why he doesn't want to change anything. It's because he's experienced life there. And I, and I want to honor that. That as we have conversations, especially between generations, that, that young people need to hear that. That this just isn't coming from a place of legalism. It's, it's coming from a place of, this is what helped me find life. Uh, and this is the very message that I passed on to you. Uh, there's a, uh, Leslie Newbigin is a missiologist. He thinks about what, how the church does mission in the world. And he says there's one point where you can tell when a, a different culture has fully accepted the gospel. And you know when that, mo- that moment is? It's when they start arguing with the missionaries. It's counterintuitive, but it makes sense, right? That they've fully owned enough of the gospel to start reading the Bible for themselves, and they start seeing things that the missionaries didn't talk about. Hey, what's going on here? And, and I think that's what's happened often with our young people who are, who are finding themselves out. And there's a lot in here about justice. But, but I didn't hear that growing up. What's up with that? There's, there's a lot in here about welcome and hospitality. and that, There's a lot in here that makes me think that maybe there's other Christian groups out there that maybe they're not just completely wrong. Maybe we're not the only ones going to heaven. And all those questions are coming from a place not of rejection of what was passed on, but it's actually because we've, we've ingested it. We accepted the gospel and, okay, now, now it's ours and we've got to make it ours. But the question is, is there room, though? Will we build the boundaries and make sure everyone is on the outside that doesn't belong, or is there room for the conversation? Thanks for being here, guys. I appreciate it.